Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hello and welcome to the very last Rest is History of 2022. And Dominic, we are still in Berry Brothers, aren't we? We are. So in the previous episode, <laughs> we came to Berry Brothers in the heart of London's West End, St. James, to record an episode on the history of booze with Henry Jeffries, which was great. And he's now gone off to do whatever white He left three days do. ago, Tom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the truth. We've been camped out here yeah. Yeah, in the for cellars. four days. <laughs> So here we are. And Dominic, at the beginning of the year, we did an episode on 1922 to mark the centenary of it. And we said that this was a, a truly historic year, a year when perhaps modernity was born. And so the obvious question is, in 100 years time, when we're still doing this podcast, <laughs> will we look back and see 2022 as being of a similarly historic order? I mean, I guess the, the one obvious, huge, historic thing that people will be studying in history books is Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Well, if you look back to that 1922 podcast we did, I'm trying to think of all the different things we covered, because we covered British politics, we covered international affairs, didn't we? Culture, so it was um, the wasteland, yeah. uh, Ulysses. And I think that is the thing that makes 1922 specific. So actually, yeah. the, the the book on 1922, which is it Kevin Jackson's book, yeah. I think it is, it largely focuses actually on, the, on modernism. And 1922 is a cultural sort of hinge point. And I suppose the problem with that is that the whole thing about modernism is that it's very, very obscure and only very few people know that it's going on. Yeah. So if there's an analogous cultural experiment, I mean, we won't have heard of it. We're not, we're not at the avant-garde, <laughs> Tom. I think that's the, we're not I mean, on the also, cutting edge. I think, um, I th I'm sure we talked about this in, in that podcast. There was a sense that, you know, the age of Proust and Joyce and Picasso and Stravinsky, this was the kind of the last age of the great man as artist. Yeah. And that really has kind of faded now, hasn't it? Yes. I mean, 2022 has been a year, of course, of talk of cancellation of toppling people from their pedestals like the last few years. So that kind of runs counter to the very great man view of artistic creation that you saw, you have in 1922, where it's about the genius of T.S. Eliot or James Joyce, as you say. But I think even at the time, there was a sense, wasn't there, in the early 20s, that a lot of, well, a lot of social, cultural, political assumptions had fractured in the aftermath of the First World War, and that Britain, Europe, and the world were trying to adjust to a new age. I don't think we, we quite have that sense, do we? In no, not at all. But, because the modernists were... You know, these fragments of I shored against my ruin, Elliot, as Elliot puts it, yeah. in The Wasteland. Um, it's the sense that the civilization has shattered and all you can do really is kind of make collages out of the shattered pieces. But it is still the great man who is doing that, Picasso, Joyce, whoever. But no one would say that now. I mean, who, you know, we, we, there, there is no longer anyone who serves as the paradigmatic great novelist, great painter, right. great composer, or, or even, you know, kind of great... Great pop star, great rock star. Yeah. Partly because of the multiplication of, of outlets, I suppose. I'm sure that's the it. fragmentation of culture. And also globalisation, perhaps. And globalization, yeah, agreed, agreed. But to go back to your what you said at the beginning, um, when people write about this year in 21, 22, they will undoubtedly think of the events of late February when Russia launched that invasion of Ukraine. 
I think that's, there's a sense now, we did podcast, didn't we, in the immediate aftermath of that about Ukrainian history, Russian history. But there's a real sense, I think, in which, I mean, we did a podcast quite early on in the whole course of the rest of history about the 1990s. And I've been thinking a lot about the 90s this year and how many of the things that have, as it were, gone wrong, how many of them started in the 90s. So Russia taking this turn into this sort of Weimar Germany sort of abyss, if you like. Reality TV. Uh, right. The career of Matt Hancock. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, no, but I think uh, when people write about this year, they will see this as the moment when a kind of post, the immediate post-Cold War era ended. Don't yeah. you think? Yeah. I think More so. so, actually, I would say, now this might be controversial, than September the 11th. Because September the 11th now feels like, of course, it's a massive moment in American history but in world history, I wonder whether it's quite as significant now as well, we thought it was 20 years ago. You might say it's too early to tell. You might say that. Because because the 9-11, people thought, was, was a decisive world moment because it was felt as presaging clash of civilizations. Yeah. And it was all about tensions between the West and Islam. And that sense, I think, has definitely faded. But it's it's not impossible to imagine, you know, cycles of terrorist attacks or something right. that might regenerate that. And I guess the kind of, you know, the, the sense of strain hasn't faded. It hasn't gone away. No. In terms of pressures on uh, the frontiers of Europe. Tom, there's people outside trying to shut you down. <laughs> Force their way in. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I would, I would say that, you know, in, in 2005 or was it, um, was it 2015 when there was the migration crisis? Yeah, 2015 or so. Yeah. So I would say back then, if you'd done a kind of end of the year, you'd say these are seismic issues but they faded they they seem to have less saliency now um even though in britain one of the things that has dominated the headlines is people trying to cross the channel in yeah in small boats so that is obviously kind of bubbling away but i agree it doesn't seem to have the salience that say the the threat of superpower conflict does yeah because back in 2001 9-11 seemed so shocking because it interrupted what people had assumed was an era of kind of constant peace where the very idea of you know countries going to war was kind of over or at least you know countries in the west but i think the ukrainian war also feels that it has this resonance because we're living in a period where the assumptions of western liberal democracy are embattled anyway so post financial crisis post i mean you mentioned the migration crisis brexit the rise of China, all these different things mean that the sense of unity and kind of complacency, I guess, that you would associate with Western democracy, certainly in the 1990s, that has really completely fractured. And so the Ukrainian I really war miss is... It. And, sorry? I really miss it. Well, <laughs> I love being complacent. But don't you think now that... I, I definitely think now that after what happened in February and then the, the, the slaughter that has followed... You know, I look back on what on the events of the 1990s and think it was all just a complete illusion. I mean, I, I'm sounding a little bit like Adam Curtis here, but yeah. uh, but I mean, yeah, let's have a jump cut to people throwing a ball about in a <laughs> exactly. 1950s American swimming uh, pool. Yes, and, and oddly, <laughs> oddly jarring music. Um, <laughs> but uh, so Adam Curtis, for those people who don't know, is this brilliantly talented uh, BBC filmmaker who creates these documentaries that are kind of. They're a combination of a collage and a, and a conspiracy theory, and I don't mean that. And he, he too had a, a brilliant new series on on Russia, didn't he? On the, the post-Soviet history of Russia, yeah, entirely made up of uh, footage, right? That he trauma sourced. Zone. yeah. Um, so no commentary or anything, 
Um, and Dominic, weren't you watching one of those episodes <laughs> on a train, on a laptop? Well, I think uh, our club members will have uh, heard this anecdote already. So Tom and I, we did a we did two episodes, didn't we, about the history of treason at the National Archives. And on my way down to the National Archives on the train, I was watching, I can't remember, it was episode three, episode four of that series. And on my laptop, because I was so addicted to it, it's such an immersive series. It plunges you into that very Weimar Republic world of mid-1990s Russia, in which the economy had completely collapsed, living standards had collapsed and so on. Enormous political turmoil. So I'm, I was watching this on my laptop with my headphones, very crowded train. And um, it, suddenly, the, the, the sort of there's no voiceover, so they use captions. The caption on the screen said, people turn to unusual ways to make money. And I thought, oh, no, what's coming now? <laughs> and then the camera, the, the picture cut to a couple very, very explicitly having sex in front of some cameras on their bed, sort of this amateur couple. And I thought, oh, God, it'll just be for a moment. And then over and over, the lightning <laughs> <I> crashed. <laughs> but, no, but no, the scene went on and on. I was sitting next to this young woman who's very smartly dressed, kind of she was ostentatiously like looking at her work for the day. And I thought, oh, I can't bet. This is this is so excruciating. So I tried to... <laughs> to, to sort of fast forward to the next scene or something on the BBC iPlayer, which I have to say is a very clumsy bit of online technology. Because as soon as I moved the thing on, the picture just froze. <laughs> and I had this sort of circle on the screen going round and round. The picture froze. You, you just hurled it out the window. And a very, very unfortunate <laughs> close-up. Pull the emergency cord. <laughs> and, and I could feel my face absolutely burning. And I, and I, so I sort of, even though I had my headphones on, I sort of very, very artificially and inauthentically said, oh, for God's sake, <laughs> or something. And then well, cl- cl- closed the laptop in a great sort of, uh, in, a, in, a, in a great bit of a lava, I think it's fair to yes, say. Yes. Anyway, so obviously for, by that, the by. for that reason, <laughs> for that reason, Russia has been much on my mind. Well, it's but obviously there was a real sense, I think, in 2022, for the first time, I would say, certainly since September the 11th, since 2001, of an existential struggle, don't you think? Mm-hmm. I mean, there was a real a feeling that a lot of people found a cause. They found a heroic figure in Vladimir Zelensky of a kind that really in the Western world, we haven't really put anyone on a pedestal. Do you think like people that. have got slightly bored with it in the West? Oh, yes, definitely. Uh, and I slightly resentful of... Well, I think there have always been people who have been more bored and resentful than others. I, I mean, most famously in Germany. I mean, there have been German politicians who, who basically said explicitly to the Ukrainians in the early days of the operation, look, it would just be better if you lose, if you lose right now. But what if they um, had? So, I mean, you're saying things are bad now, but what if Zensky had fled or taken the lift yeah. that he got offered by the Americans? which he famously turned down. Yeah. And the Russians had occupied Kiev. What would, where would we where be would now? Where would we be? That is a fascinating question, isn't it? Would the West have basically accepted the fate, grumbled, imposed some sanctions, but accepted the fate complete? Maybe they would. I don't know. And what would the implications of that have been for geopolitics, I guess, for for the security of Europe and for China's um, plans well, they for would, Taiwan? I mean, you, you know what I'm going to say, which is that... Um, I think there would have been very baleful implications. Of course, you could say that actually this would merely have been the continuation of a pattern because um, effectively nobody, I mean, there was a, a small bit of a fuss by, by in, in, in sort of grand terms in 2014 when Russia took Crimea, uh, when Russia went to war with Georgia in 2008. 
again, very little fuss in the West. Even going back to, so to go back to that Adam Curtis documentary, the final episodes of it, which are unbelievably harrowing, I have to say, are about the war in Chechnya. And that was an unbelievably brutal campaign. Just the complete destruction of the capital city, Grozny. And effectively, people in the West saying, well, we don't care. You know, it's an internal Russian affair. We'll just leave the Chechens to their fate. They just have to suck it up, basically. Um, so you, so had Putin taken Kiev, had Zelensky fled, had Ukraine, let's say, been partitioned, then I think that would have, I mean, Putin would just say, well, this is just great. This is more. And he may well have started eyeing the Baltic states, do you think? Or do you think NATO membership would have? Well, isn't one lesson? I mean, listen, we're getting into politics here and I know our listeners will have, some of our listeners will have very strong views. So I'm not intending to, to just lecture them and pretend my own personal opinion is the gospel truth. But my own view is that NATO membership is clearly worth something. Yeah. Because if you were Latvia or Estonia, countries with a very large Russian and, minority... And Finland and Sweden, who've both joined. Have just both joined. So if you are Latvia or Estonia with a large Russian-speaking population, you know, maybe 30, 40% of the, of, the, of the population, you would say, my goodness, NATO membership is what is actually guaranteeing our independence and our inviolability. And had it, were it not for NATO membership, we would undoubtedly be next on the menu. The other podcast we did, in addition to the episode on Ukraine and uh, Putin, the rise of Putin, that has kind of haunted me ever since we did it, is the one we did with Helen Thompson on oil. We did two episodes oh, yeah. on oil. And this was, I think it went out before the invasion, and she was already in a very kind of baneful mood about the whole thing. And she was talking of the risk of I mean, she she put Europe's dilemma in a really fascinating historical context that essentially ever since the coal-based economy came to be replaced by the oil-based economy, Europe's been stuck because it doesn't have the oil reserves that Russia and yeah. the United States had. And that in, in a sense that doomed the European colonial empires and therefore doomed the centrality of Europe in the global geopolitical system. And it, it does seem that the invasion of Ukraine has kind of turbocharged the threat of deindustrialization that has always stalked Europe, I think. Yeah, I think that's true. I think it's 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 a little bit like we did an episode, didn't we, um just over a year ago about 1973 and the oil weapon. So it feels a little bit like 1973 in that regard. So what happened in 1973 with the oil crisis was that it laid bare what experts and insiders had already known, of course, which was the West's complete dependence on imported energy on middle eastern oil but that included the united states and now the united states is not dependent to nearly you know it's exporting its gas right it's fracking away you know it can impose sanctions on russia with a, a fraction of the damage that it's doing to yeah. europe to the european union and to, to Britain. So, so helen thompson's argument is is that in the long run you'll see this great divergence or the, you know there's a, a serious possibility of a great divergence between europe and the united states both economically and politically because of our our energy dependence. I suppose the counter argument would be that nobody would have anticipated before this year just how resilient NATO, the Western Alliance, would be in the that's, face of that's, the. That's looking at it half full, isn't it? Yeah. I'm yeah. a very half full person, Tom. You're half empty. And of course, um, one rosy thing, and I know how uh, you love optimism, don't you, Dominic? I'm very optimistic. And you yeah. love a bit of science. I do. Um, right. The prospect of cold fusion, which seems to have 
um, oh, yes. come a little bit closer That's which has you know, been the energy holy grail for 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 years for decades because i think there, there were some british scientists who announced that they'd they'd yeah. done it in the 90s and everyone went terribly excited and they couldn't reproduce it but it does this does look as, as if it might be a bit rosier and Definitely. people are talking about it coming coming online in about you know a decade so, there's so that, but but, the, but another technological innovation of the year that may be historically very important that has got lots of attention it's actually got a lot of attention from our rest is history club members is ai so there's been the launch in the last couple of weeks of this new ai yes because one of the club members um got the ai bot to write a daily mail column in praise of argentina's behavior in the world cup uh, in the style of dominic sambro well i've seen i've been saying quite a few of these so i sent well, one it, yesterday it, it, it's it read very convincingly no. and if i were you i'd be very worried for your future employment no, no, because no, why no. would the daily mail pay you to come out with this stuff when they can employ a bot i'll tell you why because the bot is not polemical enough because i've been sent a few of these by our club members so i sent one where the bot was asked to write a one of my columns complaining that woke warriors had abolished the carthaginian practice of child sacrifice <laughs> And I pointed out that the the <laughs> AI tosh. the AI bot is very much on the one hand on the other hand. Is it? And of course, in column writing, you can only ever really have one hand, Tom. Yeah. Okay. So, the AI right, so your job is a, safe for now. Has a lot to learn. Yeah, job it reads is- too much like an A level essay. Very <laughs> okay. balanced. A right. List of factors. Okay. But so that's not what the the public want to read. Okay. So there's hope for the human race yet. <laughs> uh, and on that cheery note, we'll go for a break. And when we come back, well, it'll be the very very last podcast half. Of the year. What we'll a poignant moment. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, US Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics US, brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008... Was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people (laughs) will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Rest is History. We are looking back at the events of 2022 in a, in a sort of rambling style. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, we've, we, sh- we, we should remind listeners that we're doing this after the episode we did with Henry Jeffries on the history of booze, and he brought along some port. <laughs> he did. He did. He's given us about he three did. glasses. And if you, yeah, if you've heard people around us, that's kind of revelous, isn't it? People are having their Christmas lunches, departing very well oiled, um, from being decanted by, from various places at Berry Brothers and Rudd, where we are. So Tom, I'll tell you what a lot of people in Britain will remember the year for without any question. That's the death of Her Late Majesty. Elizabeth II. Well, there's been a lot of royal news. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so They're not going to remember it for Harry and Meghan, let's be honest. Well, uh, they might. I, I mean, history books are, are always interested in um, badly behaving younger sons, aren't they? They and are. tension between yeah. um, the elder and younger son. Ludicrous um, self-serving misbehaviour <laughs> yeah. has never failed to interest yeah, historians. So an early, you know, an earlier generation of younger son would go off and side with the King of France and try and annex Gascony. Yeah. Um, and now they go off to California and make yeah. self-pitying <laughs> videos. Well, to be fair, he so, wants to avoid publicity, Tom. He does. Yes, he <laughs> so does. So that's why he's made anyway, the six-part but, documentary. But, but, so, the, yeah, so the death of the Queen, I'm sure that that will be used by historians as a bookend. Oh, absolutely. It's very, very convenient, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. I mean, I, I remember we discussed this in our episode on the Queen, and we said it kind of depends what happens, you know, it, in the next few years, because obviously Queen Victoria's death coincided pretty much with the end of the 19th century and then the yeah. first world war came along and i suppose if terrible things happen then it'll be the perfect literary device yes exactly. it really will exactly i mean i think to, for me what was striking about it looking back is the uh, there was there was always part of me that feared in my sort of john bullish way that when the queen died people wouldn't react you know people wouldn't care they'd be much less you know, moved by it than I thought they should be. And I was actually really surprised how moved people were and how rapidly every, pretty much every single institution in the land rushed to put on the kind of the garb of mourning. Um, and the sort of the, the almost instinctiveness with which a huge proportion of the public in Britain embraced the idea of mourning the Queen of you know that this was an important moment all of this kind of thing i mean there were of course there were and still are republicans or people who don't care but there are fewer of them than i thought there would be you got cross with me for using the word weird to describe it i still i'm still cross about that time i can't believe you'd bring it up <laughs> well i'm gonna just i'm gonna just fight because um weird in the the uh the, the old english sense yeah of things that are too strange to be contained within the kind of diurnal rhythms of everyday life. Like Liz Truss. <laughs> well, exactly like Liz Truss. So she got put on, I mean, yeah, we'll come to her in a minute. But the sense that the British state is really quite odd, you know, it hasn't been kind of pulled down completely and kind of start again from scratch. That So I've just been actually been writing an, a, a feature on King Edgar in the 10th century right. who and St. Dunstan, uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury, who was famous for um, recognising the devil when he came into his forge and grabbing the devil by his nose with a pair of tongs. So this this Dunstan... What the devil was after? I, I, up to no good. He's the devil, Dominic. I mean, de- the devil walks into your forge. You don't have to say, St Dunstan was a blacksmith. What's he doing in the forge? 
he's he's a humble lad who grows up to, to you know fulfills every young lad's dream of becoming archbishop of canterbury right. <laughs> you, and the devil came the into his forge the devil came into his forge what, after a horseshoe or something i imagine he was up to no good dominic that's what the devil does okay i mean yep <laughs> i didn't expect to get here from okay but, but this is this is the measure of how weird it all is so this saint dunstan who yeah. is attacking the devil with a pair of tongs he's also the guy who devises the coronation order that is spoken he's when the person King I'd edgar go, who i'd go to for a coronation King Edgar, in the middle of the 10th century, is yeah. crowned in Bath amid the splendours of the Roman remains. And that order of service for the coronation inspires the French order of service. It has influence on German and Italian royalty, but it's part, it's pretty much the basis for the coronation ritual yeah. that will be in Westminster Abbey when the king gets crowned next year. I'd like to think we'll do and, an episode about this, Tom. And I, what I felt about the mourning for the Queen was people kind of getting in touch with a sense of the antiquity of things in this country, an order that is so old that it does feature archbishops who go around attacking devils yeah. with tongs and quite enjoying it. I mean, oh, yeah. people were people were sad, but I think they quite enjoyed being sad and they quite enjoyed the sense that everything had kind of stopped. And for a while, we weren't having to worry about Liz Truss or yeah, uh, I agree. energy bills or whatever. And we could all just queue up. Britain is quite a peculiar country in that it, there's a large section of the British intelligentsia that has a very hostile attitude towards its own flag and displays of... Well, this is the George Orwell thing about rather stealing from the poor box. Rather stealing but, from yeah. the poor box, exactly. But of course, we don't really have a national day. We don't really have many national, sort of overtly patriotic national rituals. So actually, this was very unusual. A chance for people to go out into the streets to watch the bands, to watch the the parades, all of that sort of stuff. We don't get many of those. So I thought it was interesting that, I mean, she died in Scotland. Yeah. And again, you have to wonder, was that, you know, did she know that death was near? Is that why she went to Balmoral? Because that gave it a real charge. And I think the Scots were, I mean, they're much less, they're much more sceptical about the monarchy, I think, in general than the English but there was a sense that the rituals of the morning were very, you know, they were very Scottish. They were yeah. kind of played out in Edinburgh. And then, of course, they were played out in London. I think there was much more scepticism in Wales. And we talked, we touched on this in our episode that we did for the World Cup on Wales. I mean, it, we, we kind of made a joke of it, but there is a kind of interesting ambivalence in Prince William. Yeah. Who, you know, from early on had identified himself with English football team is now the Prince of Wales. And when England were playing Wales and, you know, he dead batted the question of he did. which team he was Michael supporting. Sheen was not happy. So you can under, you, I think you could understand why in Wales, perhaps they'd be, they were less touched. But I think in, in both England and Scotland, there was a sense that people were in touch with an order that went back a very, very long way. And rather than feeling contemptuous of it, people quite enjoyed it. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's right. I think as well, Oh, of course, you mentioned the fact that it was an escape from the political headlines. Right, so let's come to that. Um, so this will yes. be also be remembered in Britain and perhaps around the world, because I think that the, the chaos of this year did win global embarrassment for Britain. I think internationally, the, there was a feeling that British government was basically stable, that it I, I, provided you know stable People governance. say that all the time. This is the kind of nonsense they say, and the rest is politics. I think that is, anyone who says that just exhibits their complete ignorance of go British on then justify politics. that i've just said it so i'm not, no, feel no, that I'm just you didn't say you didn't you didn't say that you thought it. you said you thought people abroad said it 
And I think you're right that people, let's say, opinion op-ed writers of the New York Times says, what's happened to Britain? And people right. always cope, people always, Robert Harris-ish people. I like Robert Harris a lot. I'm not slagging him off. I think he said this in an interview with you in The Spectator, which yes, is why out, I'm conscious now. So you can read he, that, folks. He, he came out from Germany, said, oh, people in Germany were saying, what's happened to Britain? They always organize everything <laughs> so well. And I thought, what? Harold Wilson, 1975? No. You know, I, Margaret Thatcher in 1981, the most unpopular no, prime minister's it's, record. But, but it's began. the difference between um, proportional representation and first past the post. Yeah. There's a general feeling that if you win an election, then you serve your term. And that's why the, the drama of Mrs. Thatcher's deposition was, yeah. was, so, was so brilliant, was it didn't actually happen very often. Yeah, or the uh, 1920s. So in our 1922 yeah, podcast, we're talking about a period of enormous political turmoil. What is it? Three elections in as many years, governments yeah, rising and falling. Large, post-war... I mean, I'm, you've written the books on it. You, <laughs> teaching you to suck eggs here. But by and large, if you win an election, you you and you know, and you're the leader of a party, you yeah. you lead it through to to the next election. I mean, I know in the seventies it got slightly, or even slightly the 50s. Queered. So in the mid fifties, fifty five to fifty seven, you're three was, prime, was prime minister for what? Ever? <laughs> yeah, eleven years. Kind of eleven years. Major was prime minister for seven years. Seven years. Yeah. Blair, Blair was prime ten minister years. for ten years. Uh, Brown was quite short, but Cameron had kind of five six years did he yeah and then since then it's just been kind of getting shorter and shorter and shorter so may was i mean you know disastrous and chaotic johnson was disastrous and chaotic and then trust bear you know i mean she's the lady jane gray of she is poor <laughs> of trust. i mean the thing about this and, trust and is poor woman and the thing i feel sorry for her yeah well um, you're, is this the peerage thing again no, no, no i don't no, that's that's no, the thought distrust. of her having to go and stand in the the cenotaph. You at the cenotaph forever. But as you said, it's like a Greek, it's like Sisyphus pushing up his rock. Yeah. For the rest of her life, she'll be forced to go to the cenotaph. And, and, it's a and terrible quite, quite purgatorial soon, punishment. Quite soon, probably in about eight years, people will start saying, who's that? She'll be like Lepidus, the guy who was left, you know, from the second triumvirate who yeah. lingered on in a kind of <laughs> phantasmal impotence for the rest of his life. <laughs> yes. Yeah, because presumably she can't make an enormous amount of money from the speaking circuit. I mean, would you I pay? I would have thought she'd be in huge demand for her <laughs> advice on port markets, opening up port markets, <laughs> the economic and political stability. Um, well, well, anyway, who knows? I don't know. Maybe. I think you see the the massive turmoil in prime ministers is really ultimately symptomatic of. It's a couple of things, isn't it? It's post Brexit. It's definitely Brexit. Yeah, it's, it's Brexit, it's- but it's also you know COVID the horrendous economic challenges okay, so that we're facing. So the system has really been buckling under the pressure of all these things. How much worse are we doing than other countries? Well, I don't think we are doing that. Are I mean, this is the... Because I look at graphs. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't really, I didn't really this, understand graphs. This is the most absolutely tip-top <laughs> I know, point. I know. But I look... But, but, so, I'm saying, so there'll be somebody who's saying, Britain's terrible. You know, yeah. whatever, we're awful. Yeah. Uh, vote Remain or Labour or whatever. <laughs> That's and, generally and, what they do say. Yeah, I know. And the graphs will show terrible. And then there'll be two or three people saying, actually, no, we're all fine. Everything's great. Liz Truss was brilliant. She was wrong. Here are some graphs proving it. <laughs> no, Tom is proving that he spends far too much time on Twitter. <laughs> but, you, but you must have come across the... You I'm know, very conscious the of the graph issue, graphs. Because, so, I, so I don't understand Because in if, the, if to, there are people out there who can to reassure attempt, me... To attempt to steer this podcast back towards a history podcast, <laughs> the trend for printing this is those why I graphs... I prefer Roman history, because, you know, there are very few, <laughs> no, mean, very few graphs, graphs. I do no ignore them. <laughs> they, um, the trend for producing those really is a post-war thing. 
And actually, I would say that probably peaked in about the 70s and the 80s when the newspapers would print these every, you know, every week. Showing how we were falling behind. And it would always print only those that showed Britain at the bottom. You know, productivity worse than Italy. Italy is always the benchmark. Still is, actually. People will say worse than Italy. as though it's. A, I mean, Italy is actually a perfectly functioning, you know, successful country. Well, but- no, now it's worse than Poland. Is is it wor- oh is Italy worse than Poland? No, Britain saying worse the benchmark than is worse than Poland. Now, now we're yeah, interesting. Now, well, of course, yes, I suppose because they've they've Eastern Europe has now been brought into the graph orbit. But um, but I think actually when you look at a lot of these graphs, so people would say to me all the time, "We did worse than anybody on COVID. We did worse than anybody." Well, on we this. didn't in the end, did we? we no, were mid table. Mid table. I yeah. think I think we're mid table actually quite we a lot of wolves, things. But we were villa. Well, you'll be balls at the end. Of, we're balls at the end of the season with their new manager, <laughs> Mr. Lopetegui. Anyway, um, you can come back at the end of the season and see how that prediction has worked out. He's the one whose dad was a Basque stone thrower, stone stone lifter, stone Basque lifter. stone lifter. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so no, I don't think we actually have done quite as badly. I think it's become an, an annoying reflex. I just want us to do better than the French. Well, yeah, but I, yeah. Well, I, mean, I don't really care about the others. Obviously, we shouldn't just mention the World Cup at all. Oh, I don't mind about that because... Uh, You're so delighted about cricket. No, well, but also it was win-win for me, England against France, because um, I have France in the sweepstake. There's been a lot of suspicions about unsound and unpatriotic <laughs> behaviour on this podcast, <laughs> and that is the proof. No, I think, I mean, we, we did a stage show, didn't we, where we were comparing the the political turmoil in Britain with the year of the four emperors. A subject very close to your heart. Yes, you've been the writing theme a book of a book about it. that is coming out next year in July, yeah. PAX, and it will be available um, from all good bookshops. And, and one of the interesting things to talk about in that was that the year of the four emperorism, as you've said, it's not indicative of a wider sickness in the Roman no. political system. It turns it's, out not to be. It's Although pure, there are plenty of people at the time who worry that it is. It's pure faction fighting, isn't it? Yeah. This feels like, you know, it's a struggle to deal with massive economic challenges, um, I would say. One of the things I also wonder is whether, I mean, one of the things to be said about the chaos in Britain over the past few years is that it's it's certainly been very democratic. Yeah. You know, there've been lots of votes have enabled people who otherwise wouldn't have a voice to force referendums and to have their, you know, all yeah. that kind of thing. And uh, separate parts of the fabric of the state have been given votes on independence and all kinds of things like that over the past decade. Yeah. And that's something that, that seems very marked. And perhaps we're just kind of airing problems that in other countries are, you know, being hidden behind the furniture. So if you were to control... I don't know. I mean, I'm trying to cheer myself up. No, I'm not I think trying to cheer myself I up. I don't want other countries to go through what we've gone through. But Tom, I think that's a completely legitimate thing to say, actually, because the obvious contrast that people make is with Germany. And people will say, well, the Germans, you know, they never have any of this issue. They just plod along. And Angela Merkel, wasn't she great? And all this sort of stuff. But of course, a lot of the... We did a podcast after Merkel left didn't we where we were looking at the the sweep of german chancellors i'm very proud that we we nailed schroeder then as a wrong one we did yeah the lord of the rings as they call him because it was multiple what do they call him audi man yeah and then the olympics <laughs> because it was multiple <laughs> yeah. marriages i mean basically now he's he's married to vladimir putin's money isn't he yes. i mean that's yes, he is. that's what he's married to now yeah, he's behaved really disgracefully but but actually you know now people look back at the merkel tenure and they say what a terrible mistake it was to jump into bed with Russia, to do the Nord Stream deal, to basically play the part of... I mean, this will sound very harsh to some listeners, so I, I don't really mean this to be as extreme as it sounds, but to play the part of kind of 1930s appeasers. I mean, that's some of the criticism that Merkel gets now. And the, She wasn't really appeasing, though, was she? She was... She was She was on the phone to Putin every week, once a week. Yeah, but, but not, not, not because she was appeasing him, but because she wanted his gas. 
I'm not sure. Is that better? I mean, it's no, that, but it's different. Yeah, it is different. It's well, different. You know, it's you know, appeasement is the is obviously the great bogey word that you you appease because you're frightened. Yeah, I don't think she was frightened. I think no, she I just wanted she was the, You know, she wanted the gas. But I don't be, think the appeasement the appeasers were frightened either. I think they thought they could fix. I think they were frightened. I don't they? think they were frightened. Bomber will always get through. Yeah, but that's just a throwaway. You're, I mean, attacking Stanley Baldwin is not something I welcome at an end of year. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm citing <laughs> him. End of year podcast approvingly. All right, we've probably done enough political wittering, have we? Let's talk about the, some of our highlights of the year. So first of all, Tom, podcasting highlights. We have done – I sent you a text the other day, didn't I? And I said, I think we've done in the last 12 months – I work not including bonus episodes for our club members. We've done an episode of The Rest is History every two days. That's amazing. So that's something like just that's under – Yeah, we did just over 150 A massively episodes. slanted by the, uh, by the World, the World Cup. Cup. So do you have any highlights you want to pick out for people who perhaps haven't listened to all that? I know it's hard to believe there are such people who haven't listened to everything we've put out this year. If I chose two that would illustrate the sweep. So one of the things that I really enjoy about doing the podcast is when we do subjects that turn out completely to surprise me and we are able to kind of think the issues through kind of live so unrehearsed yeah and i think the episode that most surprised me and and that in a way i was kind of most nervous about going out but also felt that we'd really got to grips with quite meaty issues was the episode we did on senegal for the world cup which so those who haven't heard the the world cup episodes we took an aspect of the history of every country that was in the world cup and we kind of divvied it up didn't we and there were some countries that obviously we knew less about yeah than, than others costa rica costa rica being, being the prime example um but senegal i took because i had this image of um the door of no return the the, the door through which um two million africans it is said were taken to america in slavery and so i wanted to know more about that and the process of discovering what that what that was what it had been um the the controversies around it i i found you know kind of really really fascinating to discuss that yeah. and to research that and then at the other end uh i thought the episode on pigeons was an absolute triumph <laughs> oh, <no>. so <laughs> so the, the origin of that was that i met i sat next to gordon carrera who is the bbc security correspondent at a carol service this time last year he was an absolutely lovely man he said he'd listened to the podcast and he was dying to do an episode on pigeons because he'd written a book about the role played by pigeons in the first and second world war yeah um and I thought this was a great idea. All in favour of doing episodes on animals, and I'd love to do more. And I uh, asked you, and you did you poo poo it? I guess I, I pooing is the most word. Of it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I, I persuaded you, and, and we were kind of seeding it and saying, telling people we're doing this episode and on pigeons. People didn't believe it. They thought we were making. And in the event, I thought the episode was fascinating. It was fascinating. Um, he was a great guest. Gordon. So, so I think those two would be the the two that I would. And I would pick. Um, so I'm going to pick two series that we did. I would pick, first of all, something that we were quite anxious about. Uh, it was the American Civil War. Um, so we had a guest, uh, Adam Smith from the University of Oxford, an old crony of mine, who's an expert on the American Civil War. But it was uh, we were anxious about doing it as three Brits um, for an audience that includes a lot of Americans. Yeah. And it, it seemed to go down pretty well. And I just thought it's, it's such a fascinating subject. Um, and Adam did it all in one afternoon, didn't he? I mean, he did about four hours. Just before, of, and he had to go to America the next day, yeah, didn't he? He he was really heroic. So I, I really enjoyed that. And the other one that, that just you and I did 
because uh, sometimes we do these sort of very detailed narratives to do with a single individual. And it was young Churchill. I loved doing that. I thought it was such, so packed with incident and drama. And he was More such. More than Gordon. Cause didn't we, well, I did Gordon enjoy General year. Gordon. Was that this year? I think it was God, this year. It seems year. like a lifetime ago. Yeah, I th- yeah. So those are two, those are companion series really, aren't they? Cause they're about empire. Imperial daring do. Yeah. I mean, I kind of knew about Churchill to a degree, but I really didn't know much about Gordon. And so rather in, you know, the process of discovery, and the thing I loved about Gordon was that a figure who I had always seen as a slightly risible figure, because Lytton Strachey made him one of the, the eminent Victorians and kind of laughed at him for being sexually repressed and all this yeah. kind of stuff. And actually, when you situate him in the context of his age, I mean, he pro- seemed to me a properly heroic figure yeah. in a way that I think today we'd be it, that, that kind of I, that model of heroism would make us nervous. And Absolutely, yeah, kind agreed. Of, Agreed. Unsettled. And just before we go, Tom, um, a couple of other highlights from the year. So I know you're a great museum goer, walker, exhibition goer, and so on. Is there anything that stands out for you? There was an absolutely brilliant exhibition that I think is still on at the British Library um, about Alexander the Great. And it's less about Alexander himself than about how Alexander has been seen throughout time and across the world. Yeah. So it. it it, you know, there's there's a, a cartoon in which Superman has to rescue Margaret Thatcher, who's been kidnapped by Alexander the Great, which I thought Crikey. was unexpected. That is unexpected. Um, and at the other extreme, you know, there are kind of medieval Chinese portrayals of him and all this kind of stuff. I mean, yeah. it's an incredible exhibition and it has so much material from so many different corners of the world. Uh, so it's on in London, the British Library. And a very so good I highly recommend that. selection of books in the gift shop, uh, <laughs> yes. I understand. Well, that helps as well. Yes, it does. It has books by both of us. So my exhibition would be, I think I mentioned this to our club members, it's in a, um, a museum just outside Aarhus in yes. Denmark. Yeah. Uh, it's an absolutely wonderful museum with the most amazing, um, extremely sort of high-tech uh, exhibitions and displays on the Vikings and kind of medieval Denmark. But they had a particular exhibition on the Rus, on the Vikings in the East. And we did a couple of episodes this year on the Vikings in the East. When I saw they, they had this, I thought, how can you, how can you do such a thing? Because there's actually not that much stuff. And it's such an apparently obscure and bizarre, um, area of history. So the foundation of Kiev and the foundations of Russia and Ukraine and all of this. St. Olga, a great favorite of yours, uh, uh, Tom, burning the Derevlians alive and so on. And they did it brilliantly. It was incredibly interesting. They had the, they basically recreated the whole route and the, the, the sort of log canoes that they would have had going down the rivers, down the Dnieper and down the Volga. And then as you went through the rooms, you basically ended up in Constantinople and then in Baghdad. So it was brilliantly done. I think that's an exhibition I shall remember to my dying day. The Scandinavians do really good museums. They do. So I went to Copenhagen and saw the, the they've redone the National Museum and the, the Viking display there is really superb. Yeah. Really, really I superb. I think one reason they do them actually is because what was very obvious to me from Aarhus is that they have not, they, they, they just don't have the anguish that has entered into the sort of museum, the curatorial world in Britain. So the captions were all, 
comprehensible, not so many abstract nouns. There wasn't the sort of hand-wringing and apology and all that sort of stuff that we are now so familiar with. So it was sort of the Vikings took slaves, the Vikings behaved well, very I, I felt, violently. Well, I felt that they could have been a bit more apologetic because there was an awful lot of English gold and silver there. <laughs> so I did think that you you know, really, a little bit of apology. Did you, and feel, contemplate did, did you suffer back. harm, Tom? <laughs> I did. I did. Yes, I did. <laughs> oh, that's very sad. So I would love to go and see that that and, one, um, and I recommend the um, the the National Museum in Copenhagen. And, as and well. any any books stand out? I know you read a brilliant book about the Vikings this year, didn't you? Uh, children's <laughs> book. Well, Dominic, I, I'm not. Yeah, I mean, basic. So basically, I've I've been working so hard, Dominic, so hard. Yeah. I haven't really had time to read anything that wasn't about the Romans or to do with. Um, the rest the, is history. The, the rest is history, and there've been some great books that that has enabled me to read. So, yeah. Andrew Wolfe's book on uh, the Romantics. Oh, yes, um, Edward Shawcross's book on uh, the, oh, last the last Emperor of Mexico. Mexico. So that, that was a great. great book. I, I'm sure there are others that that yes. I could uh, I could pluck, uh, and of course, Fury of the Northmen uh, by yourself. Fury of the Vikings. Fury of the Vikings. <laughs> it's such it's so memorable. I believe you got that. And I should say that we just we had a cut just before this, and Dominic told me to say that, so <laughs> I still couldn't remember still the title. Wrong. So, Shocking. No, but it's brilliant. It's, it is. It is brilliant. Full of stirring stuff about King Alfred. But Dominic, the, the real service you've done me this year. Yeah. And I don't want you to think that I never listen to you, and that I never take your advice. Yeah. So you may. Two book recommendations that I Tom is reaching under the table. Taken while he's doing, I'm wondering what so he's going to get out. The first we did an episode on uh, the Welsh in Patagonia. Yeah, we did. And you mentioned uh, Malcolm Price. Oh, there it is. Last um, Tango in Aberystwyth. So these are a series of novels that cast Aberystwyth as the equivalent of Raymond Chandler's Los Angeles. And it's very surreal, very yeah. funny, and great detective stories. So I've just gone and got the uh, the latest in that series. God, you're really addicted to them now. Uh, I have. And what else, is Dominic? Oh my word! He's I've gone just for it. gone and bought Patrick O'Brien's Master and Commander. This terrible book full of rope. <laughs> yeah. that I, I the whole time I've been doing the rest of history, I've said I absolutely, you know, I I tried it. I thought it's unreadable, and so many people have said no. You've got to give it a go, and I've just blanked them because I felt that they were wrong. But um, we did a big series on Trafalgar and Nelson. Now that was I got yeah. massively yeah. into Nelson and the Royal Navy and all that kind of stuff. And so I did think I should give it another go. And so, um, so I've got, I've got, that, I've got Master and Commander by Patrick O'Brien, and I've got Last Tango in Aberystwyth by Malcolm Price, which I'll probably have read by the time you're listening to this because I'm going to be reading them, between, yeah. you know, after Christmas. So, oh, uh, very so good. thank you, Dominic. So those are both your recommendations. You're, so, you're um, very welcome. You know, I, I do. I do pay attention oh, to what good. you say. And yourself? Because you've uh, read, you read a lot because you, you review books review. For, so the, my book of the, the Sunday year, Times. For the Sunday Times is a book called The Restless Republic by Anna Kay. And is she coming And she is show? coming on the show in a couple of months, I think. Right. Uh, to yeah. talk. It's all about England in the 1650s. So that's the era of the Cromwellian era. But the, the great thing about it, what I loved about it, is it was so attentive to ordinary life. So it's not just politics. So Cromwell is there and there's lots of stuff about the major generals and all that kind of carry on. But there are people telling each other funny stories and eating pies and falling Women out of windows. Women called Goody. Yes, exactly. Women <laughs> called Goody. There's a, there's a vicar who amuses his neighbours with tales of a character he's made up called Mr. Prick. There's all, this kind of, there's all this kind of stuff, which I think is brilliant Massive because bands. I've always wanted to know what life was like yeah. under Oliver Cox. So she's yeah. coming on the show. And actually another guest who we've got coming on the show um, in a couple of months wrote one of my other books of the year, which is a book called Tourists. So Lucy she's Lethbridge. Lucy Lethbridge. 
and we did a series about holidays. <laughs> the and book came out just as we were <laughs> yeah. doing the research for it. The so. book came out about four days before we did the podcast. So basically, the podcast <laughs> just turned into us reading yeah, ginormous chunks, from chunks from the book <laughs> out. But she was very sporting about it, and she's coming on to talk about the real Downton Abbey because so about servants. five or six years ago, she did a brilliant book called Servants about the, the, the colossal numbers of people who were in domestic service. Um, and I'm sure that episode would be brilliant. And actually, that leads us to our last thing, which is what we've got coming up in 2023, because we've got our tour. We're doing a nation, well, a, sh- a very short national tour in April. Um, London. The glittering heart of London's West End, Dominic. Drury Lane. Drury Lane. Lane. The oldest theatre in the West End, I think. Is that Something right? Like that, yeah. Um, the oldest theatre that's always been a continuous theatre. So. They've got frozen on at the moment. <laughs> soon Tom Holland. Yeah. Singing Marilyn. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we've got the tour, but we've also got episodes uh, very coming up very soon in the new year. We have a, a slightly grim series, but an important series about the rise of the Nazis. And before that, we've got Jonathan Friedland um, talking about the man who escaped from, from Auschwitz, Auschwitz, which is we've already recorded yeah. and are amazing. Yes. Um, um, we've got our long-awaited couple of episodes on Lady Jane Grey. We have indeed. So that will yep. be coming in January. Um, and then looking further forward, we're hoping to get into subjects such as Columbus and his voyages and his place in history. The Ides of March. The Ides of March. This has to be going out on the Ides, Ides of March. March. The Spanish conquest of Mexico. Um, we are going to the Phoenicians. Uh, yeah, we're doing the Phoenician. We're doing Jezebel. Jezebel. We? Yeah. Uh, Herodotus is coming. Yeah. The Profumo scandal is coming. Uh, the coronation and Hundred Years War. Hundred Years War. Um, the Cathars. And so uh, Ronald Reagan episode on a couple of episodes on Reagan. <laughs> is that was that a little hint of a <laughs> no, Ronald? Just a little teaser there, folks. Just a little <laughs> teaser. Gosh, there'll be. Uh, you've been in Berry Brothers and Rudd too long, Tom. <laughs> we can't the, start degenerating uh, <laughs> to Ronald Reagan impersonations now. We will be doing the uh, American War of Independence. We will be doing East Germany, and we will be doing JFK, his life, his death, and the many theories surrounding his killer. So that's all yet all to, to come in twenty twenty three. Yeah, and we hope you'll join us if you enjoyed this. The the rambling. Unfocused, <laughs> drunk, chaotic nature <laughs> of this podcast. Quality. We actually do this every week in our bonus episodes for members of the Rest is History yeah, Club. And so I'm afraid a lot of the um, the the wangs, as we call them, named after the um, <laughs> you the young that. lads who uh, General, General Gordon, Gordon. <laughs> looked after. Um, they they will have heard a lot of these anecdotes before. I so apologise for that. I think I've heard them more than once, Tom. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> to be fair. Probably. But uh, you can join up to the Rest is History Club at restishistorypod.com and that will give you early access to all our live shows. Um, you'll get the bonus episodes. you get loads of other treats. Incredible quality, isn't it? It's amazing incredible quality. incredible value. Very good value. Of course, if you didn't enjoy the rambling and focused nature of this, then you've lost nothing other yeah. than an hour of your time. Yeah. And you can just carry on as a as a normal listener. Uh, although, of course, we do hope that people will join the club, don't we? Because we're all about community. We're all about community. Yeah. Yes. So on that very, very uh, <laughs> public-spirited note, <laughs> we should wish you all a very happy new year. And we look forward to – we won't be seeing you in 2023, but we look forward to you hearing well, we from us. We won't be seeing some of them, some yes. in 2023, if they, they come to – If they come to live you know, shows. To London or Edinburgh or Manchester. So we look forward either to seeing you or to you sitting – in silence listening to us <laughs> with rapt attention <laughs> later in the new year so a very happy new year to you all and goodbye happy new year bye-bye
Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Thank you.